0: We rarely have the chance to change the world if you could prove something fundamental about the human experience but it came at an enormous cost would you have the guts and what if you proved that humanity can't really know anything welcome to season one episode two of the evolve faster podcast i'm scott ely the decapitation of reason, a skeptic's guide. Ian Ahmet had just announced his plan to transplant his head onto a different body. He was neither sick nor handicapped, so the scientific and medical communities at large were concerned about his intentions and the vast implications of either a success or a failure. Much of the general public who cared to pay attention at all fell somewhere along the continuum between voyeuristic curiosity and moral outrage. Social media about the possible surgery and its implications was predictably polarizing. And the fireworks had hardly yet begun as Ian was about to do a live interview for the possible surgeon for the operation that would be seen around the globe. Perhaps the blowback would be too great and the world would shut him down. But it was also possible that the next 60 minutes could start humanity down an irreversible path to not only the decapitation of Ian's head, but of reason itself. Ian was a controversial philosopher who rose to fame primarily by writing about knowledge and experience. He used modern reinterpretations of rationalism, empiricism, and skepticism to teach people how to think for themselves. All these isms might sound boring, but Ian's willingness to use any means necessary to prove his point gained him fairly broad attention. His books became bestsellers by making abstract philosophy more accessible and practical through challenging examples whose plausibility most readers found hard to deny. But now, Ian had a much more extreme goal one that could actually paralyze his body and mind, or even kill him. He was secretive about his reasons for such insanity. His general public claim was that the head transplant surgery would do something few philosophers had ever been able to do. He claimed he could prove his written theories about the nature of the mind through this bold experiment. On this thin explanation alone, the scientific world became highly skeptical of him. One day, it was announced he would finally talk in detail about his reasons on a popular science TV show where a famous neurosurgeon named Dr. Ross Hunter would interview him. The premise for the interview was that if Ament were able to persuade him with the validity of his reasons for the surgery, then Hunter would attempt the operation himself. The origin of the agreement wasn't fully known, but most assumed and Ament agreed to the interview because he knew there weren't many surgeons either capable or willing to do an operation with such an extreme nature. So, Mr. Ament, let's cut to the chase. I assume anyone watching this channel already knows enough about both of our backgrounds. So can you please explain to me why you want to do this head transplant on yourself when you have no physical or mental need for it. It's a drastic surgery and would be highly dangerous for your life and my career. Assuming we could even get around the legal and medical licensing issues. Dr. Hunter had a reputation for being blunt. In the studio, Ament confidently pointed at the book he'd brought with him sitting on the table between them. Cicero once said, "'A room without books is like a body without a soul.'" but I'd like to change this quote. I think a room without books is like a body without knowledge. As you know, I've been writing about knowledge for a long time, Dr. Hunter. And every word I wrote about it was referring to a single part of the body, the head and the brain. In the last 2000 years, humanity created many theories about mind and knowledge, spanning from rationalism to empiricism to skepticism. As a philosopher, You might think I'm a person who only loves theories. That isn't true at all. I like to think that theories are nothing more than a bag from which we get the ideas. And only through practice can we prove these ideas. Only through practice can any human hope to become their highest self. Amit took a sip of water and continued with the same confidence. You and everyone in this room will likely agree when I say that humans are conscious beings. So I'd like you to imagine a scenario. Imagine you're asleep in your bed. While you're sleeping, someone with a very bad sense of humor moves you from your bed to the deserts of the Sahara. When you wake up, most likely due to heat, you'd naturally have no idea how you got there. You'd start to panic and question everything. You'd be terribly confused. Well, I believe the same effect would happen if you transplanted a head onto a new body. We know there are critical nerve centers in your gut, for example. So how would the old mind on the new body even know it's real? It is through thought experiments like this that I concluded the only way to prove our entire body creates knowledge is to do a head transplant on myself. I realize it's hard to grasp when worded in a simple statement like this, but please try to understand that I've been analyzing these problems and how to prove them for decades. Dr. Hunter gave Ahmet a long gaze as if he was preparing to reveal an unsettling fact. So just so the audience is informed, you mean to transplant your head onto your identical twin brother's body and the other way around. Is that correct, Mr. Ahmet? Ahmet replied calmly, exactly, Dr. Hunter. Our genetics and blood type should make the transplant more likely to succeed. He's also an intellectually curious person who wants to know the truth. Dr. Hunter couldn't help but laugh. I have to admit, I'm impressed at at least one thing, your ability to convince your brother to do this. Imagine the love needed to willingly have your head cut off for someone else's experiment. When I initially found out you were proposing this, I was under the impression you were doing this for some sort of body upgrade. It would surely be convenient to swap out a 50-year-old body with one that's only 20 years old. But with your plan, you'll get almost the exact same body. It seems to add an ironic element to this already bizarre story. Dr. Hunter briefly paused, then continued. All jokes aside, your choice of surrogate body, so to speak, does seem to show you have a more serious motive, though I'm quite sure you still haven't revealed it with your description here. So I think you understand, Mr. Ament, why many of us are skeptical of what you're saying. I also personally still can't believe you managed to talk your brother into this. Where is he? As always, Ament was as calm as the band that supposedly kept playing as the Titanic sank. I didn't have to talk my brother into anything. This is something we both wanted to explore for quite some time now. The difference is, however, my brother doesn't feel the need to talk about this publicly. He feels it's simply our right as humans to do whatever we want with our own bodies and minds, as long as no one's being forced into anything. But if you need a metaphor to sell this concept more broadly to the world at large, then I suppose we are the monster, and you, Dr. Hunter, have the unique opportunity to be our Dr. Frankenstein except this time, we hope it's a little more successful. Ahman paused for laughter, but in his dry delivery and with the weight of this conversation, none was offered. But instead of being shaken by the awkward silence, he smiled and continued, I'm glad you're skeptical and I'm honored that you took the time to talk with me. Your credentials are the only reason I was willing to do this interview, but being a scientist and having my respect doesn't automatically make you an expert in skepticism. I assume you're aware of that. But more importantly, the obvious opportunity here for you is that no one has yet attempted this operation. Why? Well, besides recent medical technologies making it more plausible, the real reason is that everyone is afraid of the great unknown. Nobody knows what will happen to the person who undergoes this dangerous surgery. But one day, it will happen. If not by us, then by someone else. And the sooner we do it, the better. The sooner humanity debunks the great mystery, the faster we will gain new knowledge. You see, our goal isn't just to prove the theory. We also want to shed light on the darkness. Even if we both die, it will be a step forward. So you two want to be the Yuri Gagarin of the head transplant, Mr. Ahmed? You want to be the first human who went where no one dared to go before? Is this prospect of your names living in infamy getting closer to your true reasons? Dr. Hunter stopped for a second as he turned to the camera and the audience directly. Let me offer a little context here so everyone watching is informed on the beautiful history of the head transplant. A Russian scientist in the late 1920s by the name of Sergei Brukinenkino managed to keep the severed head of a dog alive. The dog's head was connected to a primitive heart-lung machine. Some 30 years later, another Soviet scientist, Vladimir Demikov, conducted dog head transplants, resulting in two-headed dogs. And more recently, an Italian neurosurgeon, Sergio Canavero, is trying to find a physically incapacitated patient willing to undergo the world's first human head transplant. So wouldn't it be easier for you to wait and talk to Canavero once he finds a patient and performs the surgery? Surely that would be enough to prove your theory. Ament replied flatly and without emotion. No, Dr. Hunter. I'm afraid that wouldn't be enough. Dr. Canavero is looking for a volunteer who'd benefit from the transplant for health reasons. No disrespect intended, but on whomever Canavero does the transplant, their body will likely already be dead. So only a head transplant from one healthy body to another would prove my theory on knowledge. I'm not trying to offend anyone. It's just not possible to prove my theory with that kind of body. My theory can only be proved if I do the head transplant with a person whose experiences I know. That is another reason I'm fortunate to be able to do the transplant with my brother, a person whose life and experiences I know quite intimately. Dr. Hunter began showing a glimpse of intrigue. But wouldn't it be equally interesting to your theory to prove what it would be like to acquire knowledge after years of having a dead nervous system? As if something caught his attention a quick spark could be seen in Ahmed's eye. Yes, it will be fascinating to watch what happens if he finds a patient and the surgery is successful. To give the mind a body capable of experiencing everything this world has to offer is a wonderful thing. But acquiring knowledge isn't just reading books, which is something most people fail to understand. Only people with the capability to critically think can gain beneficial knowledge. Sure, you can read a book and learn how to cook or play an instrument. But without learning how to think critically, you're just another mindless puppet. Amund paused for effect, then continued. This is another reason why I believe it's necessary for us to do the head transplant. I already said the first reason is to prove the body gathers knowledge. But the second reason is to prove the knowledge we gain through our body can't influence the mind. If both our minds stayed the same after the operation, I think that's good enough proof for this thesis. Dr. Hunter looked through his notes, then continued, I'm sorry, to me as a surgeon and a scientist, this still seems like a half-baked reason, at best. You must know that learning changes the physical structure of the brain, correct? Furthermore, different parts of the brain are more capable of learning separately. So even if this preposterous experiment works, many uncontrollable elements will likely undermine your goals and supposed proofs. For example, what if after the head transplant, your brain reacts differently, not because of the body, but because some part of the brain decided to do so. You will have your eyes and ears, but it's likely that your sense of touch will be completely different. And it will be hard to prove whether the mind influenced the body or the other way around. Another spark appeared in Amund's eye. Yes, Dr. Hunter, I'm aware of the risks, but I know you're aware the human brain is not just a USB disc used to just store information. Even the commonly used, the brain is a computer metaphor is outdated and not very useful anymore. If we have to use a metaphor, the mind is more like a highly sophisticated self-learning software that allows you to use the stored information in the most learning efficient way possible, which is to think critically and be immune to the external influences of society, culture, and other people. Paradoxically, even though our mind is our very essence, most of us don't bother to maximize its efficiency and its possible applications. It would seem that most people these days care more about their bodies than they care about their minds. They seem to care more about, for example, how to train their body than what sort of information to accept and not accept into their minds, and what kind of thinking to include or not include in the way they use their mind. And that is what's crucial. Senses aren't the only tool we use to gather knowledge, but reason as well. Without reason, all your senses become useless and unaccountable. Dr. Hunter seemed to be deeply processing this argument, so Amund paused before continuing. Let me explain it like this, and apologies, but I will have to share some basic philosophy here in order for this to be valuable for anyone watching. Rationalism and empiricism are two contrasting philosophical approaches that aim to account for the world around us. Rationalists think knowledge is gained independently Of sense experience. Empiricists emphatically deny this and believe that your eyes, ears, nose, tongue, and skin are the ultimate source of all your knowledge. Now, which should we choose? Let's look at rationalism first. We often say things like, this is unreasonable, or you shouldn't be so emotional, or you should be more rational. It seems that reason and rationality are the most powerful tools humanity was gifted with from evolution. When it comes to our knowledge, rationalists argue there is a reason why each object and natural phenomenon exists. Let's take Plato for an example. He believed every single thing is just a copy of an eternal idea, which he called its form. Ament pointed at the table between them. Look at the table in front of you. Plato would say, this table is just a copy of the original table form. And that form is the one people created in their mind when they wanted to create something practical to hold their plates and supposedly delicious meals. The same goes for all of the things. There's the original computer, the original scrambled eggs you ate yesterday, and so on. But the original version isn't perfect. I think you'll agree the wheel invented thousands of years ago wasn't nearly as functional and efficient as the ones we have today. One of the core reasons humanity constantly reinvents things is because of our ability to think critically. Without critical thinking and the belief that the original wheel could be better and more functional, we'd still be using stone to make them. By inventing and using the primitive wheel five millennia ago humanity gathered knowledge that told us the wheel could be better this information was later used by our minds through critical thinking to invent better and better versions of the wheel i urge you dr hunter to imagine the possibilities if more people started thinking critically dr hunter appeared more and more intrigued by what ament had to say I'm starting to think you're secretly trying to influence people into not being afraid of the great unknown you mentioned earlier. Maybe you're trying to use the operation not as a way to prove something, but simply to create a statement. I have to say, Mr. Ahmet, I know you're not an idiot. So you're either very brave, very crazy, or both." Professor Ahmet continued his theory without giving Hunter's statement much attention. Allow me to explain it further, Mr. Hunter. According to rationalism, our senses may only trigger awareness of our innate knowledge, but it does not provide us with it. The knowledge is already there, and our mind isn't a blank slate. We were born with it. Leibniz, for example, believed that the idea 1 plus 1 equals 2 is evident to us without empirical evidence. In other words, we didn't have to invent the fact that 1 plus 1 equals 2. He called such concepts mathematical truisms or necessary truths. He and many other rationalists claimed that some truths exist independently of our knowledge. Now imagine if we could discover all the truths similar to 1 plus 1 equals 2. Imagine the progress these rare diamonds would allow. Dr. Hunter gave a serious thought and answered, I have to admit, since discovering 1 plus 1 equals 2, humanity has made a lot of progress. It's a very basic concept that's opened the doors to many, many ideas. Who knows where we'd be without this knowledge, possibly even extinct by now. Feeling he'd caught Dr. Hunter's attention, Ahmed continued, Because of that, I need to find out if there's a necessary truth about our knowledge. The knowledge to do the head transplant is the result of decades of research and failures. That specific knowledge is something you possess as a surgeon, and I believe there's something in this for you as well. I think, Dr. Hunter, that you as a surgeon have the urge to prove this knowledge. It won't help if somebody else does it. You alone need to do it so you can turn your self-evident truth into a necessary truth. Maybe, Mr. Ament, but let's not stray away from the topic at hand. With everything you've said until now, you still haven't given us a credible reason. Realizing he had not yet had a breakthrough as he'd hoped with Dr. Hunter, Ament calmly continued building the next layer of his argument. Okay, let me move on to the next important principle to understand here. People often believe empiricism is more on the right track. We typically rely on our experience and scientific methodology to discover new knowledge. But my decades of research has led me to believe you need the combination of empiricism, rationalism, and skepticism to see the full picture. Let me explain next the reason for the operation from the perspective of empiricism. Many philosophers like Karl Popper and Thomas Kuhn believe there's no such thing as pure observation. In fact, it seems there's no uninterpreted experience. There's always a background on which our experiences are based. Our ideas play a crucial role in the way we perceive the world. Why do people in the United States believe that eating dogs is a terrible act, while in parts of Asia, it's perfectly normal? And in other parts of the world, The cow is sacred, yet most of the world consumes huge amounts of red meat from cattle every day. Primarily, it's because of the knowledge we were given by our surroundings, our culture, family, and society. But can anyone objectively say that eating either Fido the dog or Bessie the cow is, in itself, a terrible or immoral act? I don't believe so. Let's take it even further. The same way as there's no way of finding out if eating a dog or a cow is objectively wrong, there's also no way of knowing if everything we experience is actually reality. Many people have experienced different hallucinations or lucid dreams in their lives. And there are numerous optical illusions played by our mind from evolution. So are these lucid dreams, hallucinations, or illusions part of reality as well? One of the best recent examples was the online meme of the dress that people argued about ad nauseum as to its actual color. The problem is, we can't literally put ourselves into other people's mental shoes, at least not yet. Although I acknowledge a head transplant is a brute force method, I believe it's the best one we have at the moment. Things like deep virtual reality might eventually get there, but you will never be experiencing someone else's mind until you are literally in their nervous system. To use your analogy, we'd still be guessing about conditions on the moon if we hadn't had the guts to actually risk life and limb to go there. I might not be able to perceive how someone's mind thinks, but I will for sure be able to experience another body collects knowledge and experiences life. So empiricism tells us we need senses to gather knowledge. On the other hand, rationalism says we need reason. But I think you need both and a bit more. You also need skepticism, something that you, Dr. Hunter, and many other scientists seem to have an abundance of, at least about this experiment. Dr. Hunter didn't seem to enjoy Ahmed's remark and simply replied, yes, Mr. Ahmed, but you said yourself, skepticism is valuable. So please do continue. I'm certainly not convinced yet, nor do I believe your reasons, but I'll admit you are persuasive. Thank you, Dr. Hunter. Let me finally tell you my reasons for the operation from the point of skepticism, which is the third fundamental concept of knowledge acquisition. Skepticism, in opposition to both rationalism and empiricism, says it's impossible to know anything. David Hume, a famous Scottish philosopher and even more famous defender of skepticism, believed when it comes to philosophical analysis, we should accept all the implications of skepticism. The truth is simple. We cannot know anything for sure. Philosophers such as Epicurus, on the other hand, said that it's impossible to live as a skeptic. If a person were to believe that he knows nothing, then he would have no reason to engage in one course of action instead of another. Thus, the consistent skeptic would engage in no action whatsoever and would die. Also, if a skeptic claims that nothing can be known, then one should ask whether he knows that nothing can be known. If he says yes, then he's contradicting himself. If he doesn't say yes, then he isn't making a claim. You see, Dr. Hunter, although I believe the head transplant will give the answers, I'm uncertain of it as well. But my skepticism doesn't tell me not to do it. It tells me to do it, because only by doing it will I be able to remove my doubt. You, on the other hand, will continue to swim in the unknown Because, based on this conversation so far, you're afraid to potentially turn on the light of true knowledge. Mr. Ament, you're constantly leading us to believe you know the procedure behind the head transplant. But I don't think you realize the danger or the fact that it could disallow you to learn any of the things you think it will teach the world. Like with any transplant, the organ needs to be kept alive until reconnected. As soon as you remove any organ, it begins to die. We use cold salt water to preserve kidneys, livers, hearts, and all other organs. But the head is an entirely different story. As soon as you cut off the head, the blood and oxygen stop going to the brain and it goes into a coma. So first, what you need to do is lower the temperature of both the head and the body to at least minus 50 degrees. This is required simply to have enough time to do the operation in the first place. You also need to worry about the body's immune system not rejecting the head, let alone all the other complications regarding nerves, blood vessels, and so on. Ament didn't even seem to flinch. I've researched the basics, of course, and I'm comfortable with the risks as I understand them. I don't need to know the deeper details, as that will be your responsibility. Also, I'm fine with either outcome, success or fail, theory proven or not. My brother is as well, and we will both sign any liability release required to allow this to happen. Even if it goes wrong, something will be learned that will eventually enable future attempts to succeed." Ahmet stared at stare Dr. Hunter for a moment, then continued. But perhaps there's an easier way to persuade you. Let's think of it this way. As a rule, we all need to spend a lot of time if we want to do something properly. I'm here because I've spent a lifetime understanding the acquisition of knowledge. You had to spend years to master the craft of surgery or else you wouldn't be on this stage right now. Besides these skills, you also had to learn plenty of other essential skills. Take something as simple as breathing. You and everybody else watching learn to breathe to some degree, but your power of breathing could be better. The reason you don't improve it is because you don't feel a need to do so to survive. But professional swimmers and divers do need to improve their breathing skills, so they do. So to this end, the question we'd be answering once and for all, after centuries of philosophical speculation, is can you learn to think better? It's tempting to suppose there might be some set of guidelines that you could just follow. But when it comes to thinking, these supposed rules can't have value until proven. Empiricism, rationalism, and skepticism can be theorized until we're all blue in the face. But they have far less value for humanity until they can be proved. Would it have been useful to talk about going to the moon without actually trying to go there? The same goes for our knowledge. What's the use of talking about reason and senses as being the primary knowledge gathering tools if we can't even prove the basic foundation for these models? Only by doing the head transplant can I stand behind my words and say something like, your senses should fuel your reason. Your reason should make you skeptical. And this questioning should then inspire your drive for deeper sense experiences. But maybe, just maybe, one or multiple of those models will be completely thrown out after we have successfully done this transplant. Dr. Hunter felt as if something wasn't right. Not in what Amit had said, but how he said it. So, Professor Ahmed, if you believe in this, Then why do you seem to mind me being skeptical about your ideas? I completely agree with everything you just said. I agree people shouldn't use their senses as proof of what they experience. Just because you see something done one way, that doesn't mean it's true or the best way. And we need to use our reason, especially when we need to justify something. Finally, I also agree we need to be suspicious, although I'd prefer to say we need to be intrigued. With a slow shake of his head, Dr. Hunter continued, but even after everything you've said, I still don't believe your reasons. So unless you tell me the real reason for the surgery, I'm afraid I won't assist you with your plan. It was clear that Ian Ament seemed to be losing the battle, something rarely, if ever, captured on film. Dr. Hunter was a critical thinker who used both his senses and his reason to examine things. But he was also a skeptic. It seemed as if there was nothing Amand could do to break that triple shield. The fire he had at the beginning of the interview suddenly started to wane. After a few more minutes of uninspired dialogue, Ian Amand unexpectedly stood up and turned quickly towards Dr. Hunter. Earlier, I told you we'd be the monster to your Dr. Frankenstein. But it was Nietzsche who said, whoever fights monsters should see to it that in the process, he does not become a monster. And with that, he turned and walked off the stage in the middle of the interview. Through the lens of the cameras that still rolled, he looked like a wounded animal who had barely escaped the hunter. Neither Dr. Hunter nor the audience knew what was going on. Was that scripted? And what did Ahmed mean with that quote? They all sat in their place in silence. The only thing that seemed clear was that Ahmed had admitted defeat. Would he now abandon this madness? Seizing the awkward moment of amazing television silence, the show producer suddenly yelled, cut, so loudly that even Dr. Hunter jumped in his seat. He was still in a bit of a daze himself and unsure of what had just happened. With a smattering of uneven applause, the audience started to disperse. Dr. Hunter realized there was nothing for him to do but go backstage, as the show moderator wrapped things up and took the show offline. He entered his room backstage. He sat for a few minutes to shake off the unexpected turn of events that had just happened. Well, I didn't see that coming, he exclaimed as he got up off the couch. As he was gathering his things and preparing to leave, he heard a knock at the door and he told the visitor to enter. It was Ian Ament. But now he looked exactly as he had at the start of the interview. With the wounded animal gone, the fire burned again in his eyes, stronger than ever. He broke the silence and said flatly, I'd like to tell you the real reason why I want to do the transplant. Dr. Hunter. He gestured Ian to come in and closed the door behind him. If you remember, at the beginning of our conversation, I quoted Cicero by saying, a room without books is like a body without a soul. I said I didn't agree with it, but I didn't give the real reason. The real reason is that I don't believe there is a soul and I want to do the head transplant to prove once and for all that it doesn't exist. The human body doesn't have a soul, and we've wasted too much time and too many lives fighting over this concept. For ages, the idea of there being a soul kept people in the dark. It hindered critical thinking. And because of this idea, emotions overpowered reason. People say, follow your heart. But what people should be doing is following their mind. If we do the head transplant, we might be able to prove most of the religious world wrong. It will shatter the foundations of just about every spiritual tradition and may start a new renaissance of scientific endeavor and thinking critically. It could change everything. If my head gets transplanted onto another body, I'll get separated from my supposed soul. So, if after the head transplant, I stay the same person I am now, we will prove to everyone the soul doesn't exist. And I'm sure you realize the body's immune system can't reject something as abstract as a soul because it doesn't exist. And my brother thinks otherwise. So if I'm wrong, it will only mean he's right. Dr. Hunter looked at ahmed in shock. Is this all a game to you two? A petty family infighting over some religious and philosophical doctrine? Ignoring the question, Ament continued. You, Dr. Hunter, are now left with a choice. Will you do the transplant and go down in history as the man who proved the soul either does or doesn't exist? Or will you just be another surgeon that no one will remember? Just another human lost in the forgetful sea of the past. In the end, to you, it doesn't matter what the final result is. Maybe the operation proves the soul doesn't exist. Or, if my brother is right, maybe it proves that it does. Either way, you have the chance to be remembered as the man who changed the world." Dr. Hunter wanted to scream his reply, but he suddenly and unexpectedly hushed his own voice as he unconsciously realized the levity of what they were now discussing. You are insane. You want to prove that the soul either does or does not exist. Do you realize the consequences if you, I mean, if we do that? the entire world would change. Billions of people's beliefs might become obsolete and billions of lives could turn upside down. The aftermath would be even greater than the one Copernicus or Darwin caused. He paused and Ian could see enormous emotion welling up in Dr. Hunter's eyes as another wave of thoughts sunk in. And if you considered what will happen if you prove the opposite, what if the soul does exist? definitive proof of the soul existing could turn the entire scientific, actually not just the scientific world, the entire world upside down. And then you two, and me if I decide to help you, will be known as the people who single-handedly undermine science. Centuries of the progress of reason will be decapitated alongside your head if the world is forced to acknowledge proof of an immaterial component of our existence. Exactly, doctor. And I'm asking you, do you want to become the Darwin or Copernicus of the modern world? Because if it's not you, trust me when I say that I will find someone else to do this. It's a proof that's long past due. And if it proves to be otherwise, if the soul really does exist, well, then we'll at least be remembered as the men who dared. Dr. Hunter felt as if someone had tied a rope around his neck. He felt suffocated by the weight of the real motivation and his potential part in it. How had he not seen this coming from this guy? It seemed obvious now, and he felt a bit foolish for not thinking it through. And yet, Amen was right. This was one of those rare opportunities to actually make a mark on the world that could change the world forever and possibly for the better. Every history book would have to change either way, and it would be his name that had caused it, no matter which way this insane experiment turned out. He had no idea what to say next, so he asked the obvious question that was still on his mind. Ian, what was with all that melodrama out there? Why in the hell didn't you just tell me your actual reason right away before we look like fools discussing philosophy on TV. I'd think it would be obvious to you, Dr. Hunter. We concluded if I gave you the real reason straight away, you'd most likely refuse. You're too intelligent and rational, and you needed to be emotionally engaged with this idea. I think it's safe to say that's the case now, as most of the scientific and medical world just saw that exchange. We had to prepare you for the real reason. I actually set this whole thing up on the sly through my agent as a ploy. The show was really just a stage for us to meet and the arguments and drama out there were simply bait for your emotions. Ian flashed a clever smile, but then continued in earnest. But everything I said out there was true. Proving the modes of knowledge acquisition are secondary but important reasons to do this. I used them to create a mindset through which it would be easier for you to decide once I told you the real reason. We don't want just anybody to do the operation. The person has to be free from both the chains of society and individual mental baggage. Only a person with a critical mindset can make the right choice. As you said, this is something that could turn the world upside down completely few people are capable of the mental and physical skills needed to pull this off. Ian paused, then continued. So, doctor, what will it be? Our heads are ready. Is your mind and your legacy ready to take on a centuries-old problem and solve it once and for all? Dr. Hunter took a deep breath as he was rubbing his eyes. Ian Did you know that when Darwin finished his famous research on evolution, he kept it secret for more than two decades? One of the likely theories that attempts to explain this long delay states that he was afraid. Presumably, he felt as if he were committing a crime with this research. And in his writings, he said as much. If he unleashed his discoveries onto the world, he thought it would shake the very core of human existence back then. And the same as with Copernicus, he'd be demonized. It doesn't matter if this theory is true or not. There is truth in this thinking. And now you're asking for my hand in repeating the great earthquake or worse. Precisely, Doctor. I'm asking you to help us shake the world from a dream that's been dreamt for too long. It's time for people to wake up. So I'll ask you once again, will you help us? Will you become one of the boldest people to have ever lived? Standing there like a dead tree that had just been struck by a bolt of lightning, Dr. Hunter knew he had to give his final answer. The only question left was simple but impossible to answer. Would his answer truly be his? Or would it be one influenced by his skepticism, sensory experience on that stage, and the battle of reason he just had with Ian Amit? In the homes of millions of scientists, doctors, and intellectually curious people around the world, the collective response to the interview was, in a word, intrigue. If there was a single question asked in all those homes that evening, it was, should he do it? Dr. Hunter went to bed that night and failed to sleep, plagued by the exact same question. But he was even more troubled by the potential consequences whether he did the surgery or not. The Evolve Faster podcast is written, produced, and performed by Scott Ely. Many episodes are also co-written with the help of Antonio Rosich. It takes an enormous effort to produce all the quality original content needed for this podcast. Your support would be greatly appreciated, and you can learn about multiple ways to do so by going to evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Here you'll find direct links to review and give the podcast five stars on key platforms like iTunes and share it on social media. These are free to do, but are critical to audience growth. And the only way to find out about new seasons is to register your email, so please do so. You will only receive valuable content and information on upcoming seasons and products. And finally, if you're benefiting from the Evolve Faster podcast, direct financial support at whatever amount you can afford is important for our survival. Running ads on a channel for free thinking content is an inherent conflict of interest. So if you want the podcast content to remain unhindered by commercial interests and stay edgy and raw, then direct support is the best and only path to content independence. Also, writing and production of each episode of the Evolve Faster podcast is a major undertaking spanning many months. It's a labor of love, but it does need your help to survive. So please consider becoming a subscriber at evolvefaster.com forward slash subscribe. Your help and support are greatly appreciated and are what makes this podcast possible. Isn't it time for an upgrade, it's time to evolve faster.